Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, everybody. It's great to be together, and today really is a huge day. Today is the first day where we are launching a fabulous, wonderful church family in Alma, Michigan. This is a big deal. This is probably 12 to 18 months of prayer and planning and leading and casting vision and coming around this, and we are so excited and so thrilled for our church family in Alma. So this is broadcasting to them. Hello, everybody in Alma. So what we're going to do is, so check this out. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a huge hi there, hello to everybody in Alma. There's a good-looking guy right there. I like that. So here's, here's the six words that we're going to do. We're going to do, uh, we love you, Community Church Alma. Okay? We love you, Community Church Alma, good and loud. And then we're going to roar and clap and give them a welcome. So first of all, let's have a quick look around here. Say hello, everybody. There we go. Over here. Look at these good-looking people. Okay, so we love you, Community Church Alma. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah! See you later, guys. Praise God. Well, what a great way to start the year, starting this series that we've simply entitled Good News. Check out the side screens. Mommy's pregnant. <laughs> You're gonna have a little brother and sister. <laughs> yeah. That is good news. The announcement of new life is always good news. And that's what Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to announce. New life is good news. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks. So what we're actually going to be doing is we're going to be looking at these mega headlines that we find in the New Testament, looking at four good news stories that we find in the Gospels. And in every four of these stories that we're going to look at over the next four weeks, you're going to see a scenario where someone deserves something terrible to happen to them. It really should have been awful, but that wasn't the case. They didn't get what was coming to them. They didn't get what they deserved. In fact, what they got because of the goodness of God, was incredibly, incredibly good. So next week, the headline is, um, uh, Woman Rescued from Angry Mob. And if you have ever felt ashamed of your mistakes, and your guilt, and your sins, you're going to see how Jesus did not give her what she deserved, which was condemnation. In fact, he gave her mercy. Week number three, we're going to look at the headline about this embezzler 
who embezzled a fortune. He was a horrible sinner, and yet he's entertaining royalty. And we're going to see that Jesus didn't give him what he deserved, which was rejection, which this person was totally used to, probably hated it. And Jesus doesn't give him rejection. Jesus gives this person acceptance. And then on week number four, we're going to look at a man who continued to fail and fail and fail and fail. In fact, he was a traitor to the greatest person and the greatest cause. He should have been discounted entirely, but he wasn't. He was given another chance. This is good news. Today's headline is fairly dramatic. Man rescued at the brink of death. And this fella actually deserved death. He really did. But Jesus doesn't give him death. Jesus says, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm actually going to give you life. So I want to start off today with a very foundational principle. And it is simply this. We are all guilty of breaking God's law. Not very nice. We're all guilty of breaking God's law. Every one of us, including you, including me. We're all guilty of breaking God's law. Look at the scripture in James. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So if today you are like the most amazing person, and you actually only broke the law, sinned, made a mistake, one time in your life, just one of the laws, if you are an amazing person and you've done that, and actually, I don't think there's anybody here like that, and I'm not like that. I'm actually guilty of breaking many of the laws many, many times. But if you only imagine, imagine you only gossiped one time in your life, and that was the only bad thing you ever did, or you only lied once ever, and you never did another bad thing, or you only stole one little thing on one occasion, one time. Here's what James says. Even if you just did that, you're actually guilty of breaking the entire law. All of it in its entirety. It gets better. Romans chapter 6 tells us, if that's you, and it is, I'm going to tell you what that means. There's a, there's a consequence of that. There's a ramification of you and I breaking the law. Uh, there's a punishment for that. And it's not very nice. Here's what it is. Well, the wages of sin is death. It's pretty hardcore. Wasn't this series called Good News? Wait, this isn't very good news yet, is it? Uh, we're sinners. And according to the Bible, we deserve death. We actually deserve that. But here's the good news. Because of His grace, He doesn't give us what we deserve. Because of His grace, He doesn't give us death. He gives us something else entirely, something that we do not deserve. Luke chapter 23, we see Jesus is on the cross, and beside Him are two thieves. Look at the scripture. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Him. There, along with the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. To crucify a person was not the only way to execute a person, at, particularly at this time in history. There were many ways you could do that. And actually, I don't know if you know this, it was probably the most expensive way to execute a person. And the reason why is because it took four Roman guards and one centurion to pull it off. And generally speaking, someone's crucifixion would actually last several days. 
The reason why they chose the most expensive method of execution was for two reasons. One, it was the most painful method. And two, it was the most publicly humiliating method of execution. Therefore, that method of execution was actually reserved for people that they really wanted to make a statement about, that they really wanted to punish badly. Now, we don't know specifically what these two thieves did. Obviously, they're thieves. They stole something. We don't know specifically what that looked like. But there's no doubt about it. It could not have been a small little petty thing for Rome to pony up the money and the man hours that, for the punishment that these two guys were going to get. They really wanted to hurt these guys. They really wanted to make a public statement and humiliate them. So whatever these guys did, it had to be bad. They would strip them naked, and they would hang them naked in front of everybody. And then the sun would beat down on them for days, and a person would literally go mad. And in order to breathe, you're pinned to a piece of wood, you would push yourself up with your feet so that your lungs could be lifted somewhat, so that you could catch your breath, until you had done that for so many days that you really did reach a point of exhaustion, and you couldn't physically pick yourself any more up anymore. And then birds would come and they would begin to pick at some of these people as others walked by and spat on them and mocked them. And Rome apparently was very happy to spend the money on these two guys. It goes on. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We're punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now, what I want to humbly suggest to you today, every single man and woman, what I want to humbly suggest to you today is this. Spiritually speaking, you are one of these two thieves. You are. Spiritually speaking, you are one of these two people. I want you to look at what they said, and I want you to see if you can align yourself with one or the other. Thief number one says this. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So what do we know about this guy? I don't think it's any stretch to say he's pretty arrogant. That he's fairly entitled and he's full of pride. And certainly, even in this 11th hour of his life, he doesn't seem to have much respect or fear for God at all. If you're God, go ahead and save me. If you're God, let me see you do the God thing and go ahead and at least save yourself. Some people approach God exactly like that. Fine, what do I need to do? Fine, fine, fine. Tell me what I need to do. Do I need to pray a prayer? Fine, I'll pray a prayer. I don't want to go to hell. Do I have to say something? Do I have to attend something? You give me what I need to do, and I'll just do that. But don't ask anything else of me. This fella is on the cross for his crimes. Notice what he's not doing. He's not taking any responsibility for anything that he's doing. And if I could summarize thief number one with a single word, it would be this. He is unrepentant. There's no responsibility. He's not owning anything that he has done. He is entitled, he is arrogant, he is proud, he doesn't fear God. And then you've got thief number two. Equally guilty, 
Perhaps they did the same thing together. Well, this fellow has a completely different perspective entirely. His words are this. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. And watch this. Then he's about to take responsibility. He's actually going to own what he has done. He says this. We are punished justly. In other words, what's happening to us, we deserve this. We, we own this. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. If we're to try to summarize the second piece, yes, he's guilty. This guy, like there's a sense of brokenness to him. And he's humble. And he recognizes what he's done. He recognizes like he deserves to be where he's at. He's not perfect, not by a long shot, but he has a respect and he has a fear for God. If I could choose one word to summarize thief number two, it would simply be this. He is repentant. He knows he needs mercy and help. He knows that he cannot help himself. He knows that he needs Jesus. Let me tell you why this is so important. And for those of you who are younger, maybe this is all you've ever known, but those of you who've got a few years under your belt, you'll probably recognize what I'm about to say. I would say maybe 15, 20 years ago, probably about that, maybe 15, 20 years ago, in this culture, in the world where we live, it was not uncommon for someone to at least have the ability to say, I have made mistakes. It was not uncommon. A person would openly say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I have done things that are wrong. I really have. But I want to... Wouldn't you say in today's culture that that has shifted entirely? Don't call me a sinner. Don't point out that anything that I've done in my life could possibly be wrong. In fact, don't even call that sin. What I'm embracing, what I am, what I'm a part of, don't call that sin. You don't have a right to do that. I'm not a bad person. This is not sin. Don't tell me that that's sin. I'll tell you what's happening in our culture today. Deep down, the person who is thinking and talking and expressing themselves like that is simply comparing themselves to other people and they are failing to align themselves with the standard of God. That's what they're doing. Or they're saying, I don't believe the standard of God exists. Base root, I'm not as bad as somebody else. Therefore, I'm fine. I think this is critical. Because one of, the, one of the things that we have to recognize is that we've broken God's law. And you, that's the starting point. That's the starting blocks. Until you and I recognize that we've actually sinned, then we will not, never be able to recognize that we have a need for a Savior. Until we come to a moment where we recognize that we have fallen short of God's standard, that's not, you'll never get to the point where you actually become a candidate for His grace. Because you're proud, you're arrogant. There's no problem here. I've got it all together. If you're unrepentant, if you are arrogant and, and filled with pride, which is so many people today, you're like thief number one. But if you have a sense of humility today in your life, if you have just the capacity at least to be able to say, you know what, I've been wrong. I have made mistakes. I actually need forgiveness. Then I would say you're more like thief number two. Several years ago, 
bad moments in my little life. I was driving from Florida to Michigan with three small children and my wonderful wife. And I got to tell you, I woke up in the morning like a man on a mission. And you know what that mission was. We're going to get going. It's a long drive from Florida to the state of Michigan. And I'm not joking you. I woke up pig-headed, like, get in the car. We're going to get going. And I actually picked up my children asleep. And this is my, you all know where I'm thinking, right? I'm going to put them in the car asleep. They're going to stay asleep. And I'm going to get a few hours under my belt where there's no fighting in the back seat, people nagging at each other. Can we stop? I need to use the bathroom. I'm hungry. We're going to get none of that going on. And we're going to make a bit of progress. And I'm going to get more. And I woke up like, get them in the car. Let's get it all. And I want to go. I want to go. I got to the state of Georgia, and Pastor Allen got stopped by a wonderful officer of the law because I was driving at 83 miles an hour. Do you think less of me? I was. And I, I met the nicest, most kind. He was so polite. This officer with a beautiful Georgian, Southern American accent. He was so nice. And he came up to me and he said, I clocked you at 83 miles an hour. And I was like, really? You should have seen what I was doing two seconds before I saw you. <laughs> and he was so nice. And he wrote me a speeding ticket for 80 miles an hour. And these are the words that he said to me. And I hated it. But he was right. I hated it so much. He said, Mr. Cullen, you were driving I had the people that I loved the most in that car with me. I had my wife and I had my three babies. You were driving recklessly. He was right. I was. Because I had pig-headedly woken up in the morning and I was like, I am getting to Michigan. Let's go. And I was driving way too fast. So off I went. I have never had a ticket before that day. I have never had a ticket since that day. And it hit me hard. Like, I felt awful about it. I got in the car. I felt so guilty. I was like riddled with guilt. And, uh, and he could have given me a ticket for a lot faster than I was going. But I was being pig-headed and I was being reckless. And in front of my wife and my children, I broke the law. And then came the delightful questions. Daddy, are we going to jail? Are you going to jail? Is that happening? Are you getting arrested? No, I'm not getting arrested. Um, all the questions came out. What did you do wrong? How are you so bad? All of this happened. And then we made it home to Michigan. And I'm not joking you. For days later, I felt terrible about it. Like, I just felt rotten. You know that feeling in the pit of your stomach? I'm like, I have done terrible. And then something happened that I really didn't expect. A day or two later, like clockwork, in my little post box came, no exaggeration, six, seven, maybe eight letters from the state of Georgia. I did not know this, and I don't have any legal background, but I got letters from lawyers in the state of Georgia, and they were all saying the same thing. Do you know what they were saying? If you pay for our services, this is what their letter said. I read them over and over. You can get away with this. You don't have to pay the fine, and it was a hefty fine. You don't have to pay. You're, you don't have to, you won't be guilty. We can help you, you pay us, and you can get off scot-free. I was fascinated by this. I didn't know this would happen at all. All these letters from the state of Georgia. And I read those letters, and it's like, oh, I'm going to read that again. I read another one. Man, I could do that. 
And I'm not really sure how all of that really works. I don't know if I understand it all. But after about a day of reading those letters, you know what I did? I ripped them up. I ripped them up. And I paid the fine. I wanted to pay the fine because I knew something to be true. I was guilty. I was. Look at these last few hours on the cross. They both equally deserve death. Both men saw and heard the same things. They both had the same opportunity. They were both suffering severely. They both had need of a savior, but one missed it and one grabbed a hold of it. And the very thought that that same thing could happen today, right here as you're listening to the sound of my voice, that there's going to be two people and you're sitting side by side, singing the same songs, hearing the same good news, and one person is going to be like thief number one. Stupid religion. I don't need it. I don't want it. I'm fine. I don't care about the standard. I'm fine. I know people who are worse than I am. I'm not interested in that. And then a person sitting next to you who would say, I messed up. I've messed up a lot. I did it. I do need grace. I do need help. I do need forgiveness. The good news is that that second person will call on the person of Jesus Christ and they will be transformed and they will be made new and they will be forgiven and they will be changed and they will be healed. Because the second thief, he deserves death, but Jesus will give him life. Watch this, verse 42. Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? That's all he says. Church, it's not eloquent. There's nothing fancy. He's not even begging. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, 43, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Right there, no hesitation from Jesus. Jesus doesn't grill him. He doesn't ask him questions. He doesn't ask for references. He doesn't test him. He doesn't check his doctrine. It's this immediate sense of acceptance. Right away, two sentences. One was repentance, and then the next was forgiveness. Remember me, you're coming to paradise with me. Right there, no hesitation at all. And some of you have spent your entire lives trying to figure this out. And you're exhausted trying to figure this out. You genuinely want what that same thief wants. You spent years working and laboring and sweating and trying and toiling to get there. As if going to church or helping people or writing a little check or trying to learn as much Bible stuff as you can, could somehow outweigh the mistakes and the regret and the shame and the guilt. There's a fellow in the New Testament by the name of Paul. He's writing this letter from a prison cell to a church in a place called Colossae. And this church in Colossae have got something really messed up in their heads. These teachers had come into their church, and they'd begun to teach the people that in order for them to have repentance and forgiveness, that they needed to do all of this extra stuff, extra rules, extra regulations. And Paul's in his prison cell, and he caught wind of that, and he is seriously concerned about it. He writes this letter. He's like, the solution, Paul says, is you need to return to the Word of God. You need to see Jesus Christ for who he is. And Paul, in this letter, he rejects all of the teaching that's going on in that church. He rejects the idea that in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, 
you have to take on extra rules and extra regulations and extra ceremonies to make some people happy in that little church of theirs. The central idea, the foundation of Christianity, the bedrock of the church is simple. Please hear this. It's Jesus Christ. That's it. And you have to resolve that in your life. Because nothing else needs to be added to that. Nothing else needs to be put on top of that. If you want to know if you're in a healthy church, is this a church that's actually following the Bible and following God? One of the ways that you'll know that it's a healthy church is if that church is continually talking about Jesus Christ. And you'll come back the next week and you go, hmm, I wonder what he's going to talk about today. And you discover, oh, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And two months later, you see he's talking about Jesus Christ. And a year later, you see he's talking about Jesus Christ. This is a sign of a healthy church. Because it's only Jesus Christ who has the power to change people's lives. Jesus Christ is the only one who can change lives. Rules and regulations and ceremonies cannot change anything. That church that Paul is writing to, they had begun to drift. And so Paul addresses it, and he makes it crystal clear. He's like, make no mistake about it. The center of all that we do, the center of all doctrine, the center of all teaching, the center of all worship and serving and prayer and praise and adoration and giving and everything else that we could possibly put our hands to, I'm going to give you one word, one name, and it's Jesus Christ. Not only is it Jesus Christ, but in case you're not clear, and this is what he writes in his letter, you need to know this about Jesus Christ. He is the supreme one. He's pointing to him in every single way. He is above all other things, all other people. There are other things that are good. Angels are good. They're wonderful. And they have a role, and they have a job to do. The law. The law is great. The law is a good thing. And then there's doctrine, and there's teaching. And those are great. There are many things in Christianity that are good and appropriate and helpful, but those things, as good as they may be, make me, let me make this crystal clear, good as they are, they are all dwarfed compared to the person of Jesus Christ. And those things, even though they are good and appropriate and they have value and they're important and significant, even on their very best day, all that they do is point to Jesus Christ. He goes further. Not only is Jesus supreme, but he is sufficient. In other words, he has done everything necessary. If you go anywhere and you hear Jesus plus something else, Jesus plus extra rules, Jesus plus ceremonies, Jesus plus community church, Jesus plus read this book, take this course, all of that's nonsense. If you hear that at any point, anywhere in your life, alarm bells should be ringing. Something is seriously wrong here. Jesus plus anything else simply will not work. It's not Jesus plus Catholicism or Protestantism. It's not Jesus plus be a nice person. There is no church that can save you. There is no book that can save you. There's no place that can save you. There are no saints that can save you. There are no angels that can save you. There's no man that can save you. There's no doctrine that can save you. Only Jesus Christ has the power to change and transform lives. And something inside of you should say, yes, yes, amen. It's in Christ. It's not my works. It's not my reputation. It's not my Bible reading. I am only standing because I have been found in Jesus Christ. 
And you can go to other places. And you can hear great things that will include, include Hebrew and Aramaic and, and Greek and church history. And all those things are great. But if it doesn't start and middle and finish with Jesus Christ, that's where we need to be. If there's one thing the enemy will do, he will make Jesus Christ small. He will make everything and anything else bigger. He will try to make himself bigger. Even our enemy and demonic forces and the power of hell are dwarfed in the person of Jesus Christ. And this thief on the cross, he couldn't look at this guy. What could he do? He couldn't do anything to impress God, could he? He couldn't convince God that he should be forgiven. Why? Because he's literally bound to a piece of wood. His hands were pinned back. He couldn't even go to church because he couldn't get off the cross. He couldn't turn over a new leaf because he was on the brink of death. Church, here's the good news. Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We don't have eternal life because we're good. We have eternal life because God is good. And that is the heart of the gospel. In a minute we're going to pray. But I want to challenge every person, every man, every woman, every child, whether you're here in Mount Pleasant or in Alma or watching online, to recognize that you are one of two thieves. That is the choice that stands before you today. And you can be filled with pride, or you can be filled with humility. You can make excuses, or you can admit, guilty. I, I'm supposed to pay a fine here. Guilty. The offer to stop trying to work and toil and sweat. The truth that it's not Jesus plus church plus reading your Bible plus giving money, plus reading Christian books, plus being nice, plus whatever. It is the simplest, most honest, sincere words. Jesus forgave a thief dangling on a cross, knowing full well that that thief had converted probably out of plain fear. That thief would never study the Bible. He would never go to synagogue. He'd never go to church. That he would never, ever be able to make amends for what he had done wrong, and he had done something horribly wrong. He simply said, Jesus, remember me. Jesus promised, today you're going to be with me in paradise. It is another shocking reminder that grace does not depend on what we have done. Rather, it depends on what God has done for us. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Ah, if that's true. If that's true, then I will give it my all. And as simply as you can say today, Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I give you my life. And when you do, you become a new person. The old is gone, and everything is made new. Which thief will you be? Father, on behalf of any 
man or woman or child in this room today that wants to respond to your grace, that wants to respond to your goodness. I pray, Rob, I pray, Father, that they would simply make this their prayer from their heart. Dear God, I believe you left heaven and became one of us. I believe that you died and you rose again. I place my trust in Jesus. I ask him to forgive me of my sins. By faith, I believe that you are the Son of God. I need your grace and your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name. The church together said, Amen. Praise God. This is good news, isn't it? It's really good news, and we're going to look at it together over the next few weeks. Praise God. Okay, before we head out the doors, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time, we want to give a free gift to you. If you would be so kind as to take a few steps out to info, we have what's called a starter kit for you. We've got a Bible, we've got a devotional, we've got a personal letter for you. And if you would just head over there and say, I'm one of those people.